going to continue this morning with the uh, series of talks that I've been giving for, I think, uh, the better part of the last year, although not every time. And this is a series of talks that developed uh, initially out of talking about Mary Oliver's poem, The Journey. And I became, um, in looking at that poem, as giving suggestions about how the spiritual journey unfolds. And in a sense, the stages, uh, I identified as the first stage that we are, as it were, caught in our ordinary, habitual minds and um, somewhat take life for granted. And as I looked more at that, I became quite interested to see what is the nature of the ordinary habitual mind. We have descriptions in various places, but I found myself wanting to look at it in more detail because we may have noticed that the ordinary habitual mind doesn't immediately go away when we start meditating. Anyone notice that? <laughs> in fact, we may notice it more clearly. And so I developed initially a list of 10 dimensions of the ordinary habitual mind. And I'm looking at each of them with a particular structure in mind. First, what is the ordinary conditioning according to a particular dimension or parameter? And some of the dimensions I've looked at have been the sense of self, the sense of thinking in the mind, how the emotions work, the nature of the body. Uh, we looked, I think, uh, last month particularly at what's our experience of time like. And so we look at the ordinary conditioning. And the second uh, standpoint was what seems to be the way an awakened being experiences that particular dimension? What is the sense of self of a Buddha? You know, what's the sense of time? You know, and so forth. And then the, the third reference point is how do we go from one to two? Right? In other words, what practices do we do? How do we develop? The talk today will be on what I'm identifying as the sixth dimension, or the sixth parameter, which is the transformation of our ordinary, habitual, psychological conditioning. What all of us have certain aspects of psychological conditioning that we encounter as adults. And we could talk about that in different ways. We could talk about what's our unconscious material, again, using more Western language. Where are we developmentally not complete? Or uh, where do we have developmental issues? Where is there trauma that has not fully been, been worked through? Where are there wounds in our being? 
Some of those could be from our individual background, some of them more from our collective uh, involvement in the society. You know, maybe according to our membership in a group, being a woman or a member of a uh, um, a group that is an outgroup in the society can even have what we might call intergenerational collective trauma. And how do we work with those? Uh, we could also talk about the language of the shadow. That's the language I'm going to use especially. The materials that we don't quite see clearly, the aspects of ourselves that we don't quite know. So I'm going to focus today particularly on psychological conditioning which I've been looking at the last two times. And in particular today, I'm going to identify more clearly than I have before the main areas of the shadow and then a four-part model for how we work, uh, as it were, through the shadow. Having a model does not replace doing the work. So this will be a guide, right? As they say, the map is not the territory, <laughs> right? So, but, but it can be helpful because it can also let one know according to these four stages or these four steps on the model, where am I or where am I in, a, in reference to a particular aspect of my shadow? So I'm going to talk more about psychological conditioning and not so much talk about uh, social conditioning. That's a future area that we'll be exploring together. And last time I pointed to the way in which I believe that when we bring in attention to our psychological conditioning and also to our social conditioning, we have what we might call an expanded model of awakening. From the Buddhist tradition we get a notion of awakening and there the traditional focus is particularly to see, to have liberating insight into how things are impermanent, the roots of our own suffering or reactivity, what are the roots there, particularly in our grasping after things and our pushing away compulsively aspects of our experience. And then thirdly, in a confused notion of who we are thinking that we are permanent and independent, even though part of us knows better. And then the, the other areas that were not you know, related to that last one, we're not fully in touch with the depth of our being with a, you know, and with uh, dimensions that the Buddha sometimes called the deathless or the unborn or Nibbana, that we're not in touch with that, those. That's the traditional sense of awakening. And what I'm finding is that, and I think we know this by, you know, sometimes unfortunately, by, by a history of um, Buddhist teachers who seem very advanced in terms of traditional Buddhist insight, but who have messed up in various ways, usually around sexuality, power, and or money, or all of the above. Right? And you know, that points to a question, what was incomplete and is that do we need a larger map of what awakening is? And what I'm suggesting is that 
there's something happening in which we're, I think, bringing together uh, an emerging map that brings together traditional dimensions of awakening with attention to psychological conditioning, with attention to social conditioning. And it's, to me, it's um, exciting that there's some have even said that uh, the very notion of what awakening is is an evolutionary process and it changes at different times in human evolution. It's interesting to contemplate that. Right? And so that's part of what we're looking at. How do they come together? Again, I mentioned last time one person who's expressed, I think, some of this, not all of it, is uh, Ken Wilber, who talks about four, <clears throat> four dimensions of our growth. He talks about the need to wake up, which is the more traditional spiritual model, but he also says we have to grow up, clean up, <laughs> which is shadow stuff. Grow up is the developmental, completing the developmental tasks. And then he also says, show up, which is uh, meaning, how do I contribute to the world using my unique gifts? And all four of those, he says, are imperatives. I don't find the dimension of working through our social conditioning adequately represented there. It could maybe come under cleaning up, but there's a lot to clean up. Okay, so. Um, and I'm, again, as I did last time, I'm suggesting that our times really call for us to combine an attention to personal transformation with attention to collective transformation. We, but we have to do both somehow. And so taking this expanded model of awakening seriously, I think is part of what's deeply called for in our times. So I want to identify the different shadow areas where there's a need to work with our psychological conditioning. And this is, I find, a little bit imposing. What I'm going to name are all these different ways that we can get a little bit stuck. And there are a lot of them, and we might say, oh my god, I'm stuck according to ten of those. Oh my. What should I do? Should I, um, you know, drop meditation and find my nearest therapist, or, or what? What should I do? So, in any case, um, I'm going to name them, and then I'm going to give this model of how we might actually work with one or more of these, and I'll give some personal stories myself from my own explorations as well as and, and from others. Um, so one whole area where there can be leftover material, where there might be a need to attend, is what, uh, is what we could call core developmental tasks. And these, again, this is summarizing a lot of uh, developmental psychology, but there's basically, developmental psychology would say that we can, in achieving sort of quote-unquote normal adult development, <clears throat> we have a sense of a self. We have a sense of being someone. Again, some would say that after we have that, we come to meditation, we learn how to get rid of it. <laughs> okay, that's, that's another matter. You know. 
Jack Engler, the psychologist, said, first you have to have a self, <clears throat> then you can go beyond it. Actually, a lot of teachers say that. <clears throat> and and we, we sometimes find that there are people who, who show up in meditation retreats who don't have that developmental work done, but they think they hear the Buddhist language of uh, what's called not-self and sometimes no-self, and they said, oh, that's me. And so you can see that there can be confusion. People haven't fulfilled or completed the developmental task of having a mature self, and they can think that, oh, I'm what the spiritual texts describe, someone with no self. But <clears throat> there can be a confusion there. Right? And so there, there can be a, a clear sense of self, there can be a sense of being efficacious in the world, of having agency, and there can be a basic, you know, good level of self-esteem, which again, a lot of that comes out of what we call healthy, good enough attachment with the parents, where the parents were basically expressing joy at your being, and you internalize that, and you think, I'm okay. There's something about some baseline of self-esteem. And all of those dimensions of uh, developmentally may be not complete or may need further work. So I just wanted to name those. And, and also related to the level of uh, successful attachment with a parent, there, there develops the capacity to, re to relate to others, to have relational maturity to be able to cooperate, collaborate with others. Um, basically have a healthy capacity for normal relationships. And that sometimes is not developed, particularly where there wasn't what they call, again, what psychologists would call secure attachment with a parent. When they've done studies, they find that as many as 40% of children in the US don't have that. Right? So we're not talking about a small number here. <clears throat> so that's also, and that's also related to having adequate emotional development where one can relate to different states and be able to be different emotions, including difficult ones, and be able to both know them and have some ability to work with difficult states and work with what comes up. So that's a whole area that we call developmental tasks. Some of us may also have trauma from either, again, individual history or sometimes from collective history, right? And so, again, there's a whole way that that can be an area that we need to attend to. There's been a very helpful and important book written, and I think it came out uh, two years ago by David Trelevin, entitled Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness which gives a very helpful way to connect uh, meditation with work with trauma. And of course, there are very, a series of very good books by people like Peter Levine, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, on how to work skillfully with trauma. And it's, again, an emerging field, how we connect that with meditation. But there's a whole, there are a whole set of ways in which there might be further work to do on trauma, and sometimes we don't know that there is. And sometimes it turns out in meditation. I, I mentioned, 
I think last time, the meditation teacher, Michelle McDonald Smith, went very, very deeply in meditation and then started having these images appear and discovered that she, as far as she could tell, that there had been abuse in her family history that she was not aware of, right? And so sometimes we don't know a lot of the areas where there are developmental issues or trauma. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, right? It can sometimes turn up. There's a whole set of areas of experience which may be part of what we could call the shadow. And these might be all areas where we need to give attention. The, the psychologist Carl Jung said that the shadow is those parts of our being which don't fit with our sense of ourselves, with our kind of ideal image of who we are, a lot of which can be connected with family background. And so for, for a lot of us, there can be a number of areas that are in our shadow. And a little bit later, when I get to this four-part model, I'll talk about how we can get a better sense of what's in our shadow. Right? But here are some areas, and this is I'm particularly informed by um, a very interesting book called Meeting the Shadow. No, there's actually a few books. This is, well, I forget the title, but this is by Robert Masters, has a good book on working with the shadow. There's also a book called Meeting the Shadow. In fact, there are a lot of books on the shadow. Okay. And, but he identifies a lot of areas, and I've added some, but here are some of the shadow areas. And you can <coughs> consider whether this is in your shadow. One area that might be in the shadow is anger. If we grew up in a household or a family where anger was not okay, anger will be part of the shadow. I think this was the case for me. Um, Fear can be part of the shadow. We may have all sorts of fears that we don't even know about. Again, these are largely unconscious. We may have a sense of danger. We may have shame. That could be part of the shadow. Most of us have some areas of shame that are shadow areas. We don't want to go there. You know, we don't feel good about it. The body may be an area that we're not really present to. It can be shadow area. It's like that, I think, first line in a short story by James Joyce, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> right, and many of us grew up in a similar way. So for, for us, and I think this is the, true for me as well, Initially, the body could be said to be part of my shadow. Emotions may be part of the shadow for many of us. Again, very gender-related. Men often didn't grow up, or boys didn't grow up, having necessarily a clear sense of being in touch with emotions. Again, some of this changed in the last 20 or 30 years, but I think, that, again, I think that was true for me. I had to, you know, if uh, someone asked me how I was feeling when I was 20 years old, I would tell them my thoughts. Right. Right. And uh, of course, that's not totally my fault because we use, we use the uh, formation I feel sometimes to mean I think. So 
not totally my fault. <laughs> okay, so the emotions, for some of us, the mind may be part of the shadow. Our self-judgments may be part of our shadow. Grief can be part of the shadow. We may not have grieved something really painful and difficult that happened in our life. Maybe when we were younger, or maybe because we were too busy and we were older. Fear of death, very common part of the shadow. A lot of our addictions may be part of the shadow. Sexuality, intimacy or closeness may be part of our shadow. Conflict may be part of the shadow. Our goodness and spirituality may be part of the shadow. You know, our brilliance and our beauty may be part of our shadow. And then again, there can be all sorts of areas of collective shadow related to uh, collective pain and trauma historically around race, gender, class, sexual orientation, and so forth. One of the ways that the shadow gets manifest is that we have what we might call limiting beliefs connected with a shadow area. You know, it may be uh, that these are largely unconscious. They may be limiting beliefs like, I'm not okay, which become unconscious, or this part of me I better not show, right? Or uh, I'm not safe, or my body is not okay, or I need to be perfect in order to get love, right? And these are very common. All of us have. <clears throat> some version of these. So I hope I'm not getting us too depressed naming all these shadow areas. Um, you can see, I'm going to come back and say, when we, when we investigate this, we have, to, we have to do a lot of uplifting things when we're investigating the shadow. You know, have heart practices, compassion, a lot of beauty, because it's, uh, it's not easy territory, right? And we need, we need support and so forth. You know, again, the limiting beliefs can take many, many forms. I've looked in these especially in working with people around the theme of the judgmental mind. So they can take the form. I found this in a lot of people. If something bad happens, it's my fault. Now, these are unconscious, right? But we can bring them into the light, so to speak. The world is dangerous for... Other people should be like me, or they're bad. Pretty primitive, right? <laughs> a lot of these come out of early childhood experience, but they become unconscious, and they define a whole shadow area. And, you know, they're, they're also, I'll be brief on this, but they're also, I would say, typical shadow areas for people who do mindfulness practice. It's very interesting that... Uh, a lot of people who are mindful and do meditation can be overly nice. There can be a shadow, in other words, of spirituality, right? That we can be overly nice or not want to deal with anger. Any one of those shadow areas can, can be there. And this is related to the theme that uh, many of you know, the theme of spiritual bypassing. Right, that we can use spirituality as a way to not go into shadow territory. I can say, I'm spiritual. I don't need psychological work. I'm beyond that. 
I've touched the absolute. <laughs> we can go on like that. Uh, John Wellwood, uh, the late local psychologist who coined the phrase, he said, spiritual bypassing is a tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished, unfinished developmental tasks, any of the shadow areas, in other words. And we can use spiritual rhetoric and not go there. Uh, Robert Masters said that the spiritual bypassing is dissociation in holy drag. <laughs> and again, it can be emotional numbing or not wanting to deal with conflict, any of those areas. And I thought I'd just read, this is, I like this, uh, just to, I think I've read this before. This is from uh, Mariana Kaplan, who uh, wrote a short story about 10 years ago based on her experience of dating spiritual men. <laughs> and noticing that there were certain patterns in the people she was dating. <clears throat> and I also know that, uh, I know one of the people she was dating, she wrote a short story about this, which was later turned into a play called Zen Boyfriends. <laughs> and I know one of the people who was one of the Zen boyfriends, and he says her account does not have everything in it. <laughs> so anyway, but nonetheless, it's, it's a wonderful piece. It's out there on the internet. You can Google Zen Boyfriends and read it. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. So this is an excerpt from Zen Boyfriends. This is uh, Mariana talking with her Zen boyfriend, Jake. Okay? Jake, if we're going to hang out together, I need to feel like you're really here with me and not always so detached. I open the floor. Jake, but who is the you who wants to hang out with the me? <laughs> Mariana, I am the me and you are the you. Jake, there is no difference, so we can never really be apart or together. It's all the same. Mariana, uh, you're full of shit. <laughs> Jake, but who do you think is the me that is full of shit? Mariana, I think it is you. <laughs> Jake, who is getting angry? Mariana, I'm getting angry. Jake, look into my eyes, what do you see? Mariana, you. <laughs> Jake, look more deeply. Now what do you see? Mariana, I see a lonely man who thinks he's enlightened. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> okay, so we can we have a sense of the territory. So how do we work with it? So here are four steps to working with the shadow. Again, this is a, this is a map that doesn't do the work listening to this talk, uh, doesn't quite do it, but it, it gives, I think it gives a four-part map. And um, this is what I have found uh, very, very helpful with uh, the work I do on transforming the judgmental mind and also uh, very influenced 
by a map of development that I got when I went through a uh, body-based psychotherapy training called the Hokomi approach. And so anyone who's done, anyone done that? So you may, you may recognize uh, aspects of their model as well. <clears throat> so I'm gonna name four steps or four stages and probably the first two take the longest time. So the first is accessing the shadow. The second is being with the shadow, really hanging out with it, being able to see it, notice it, and so forth. The third is transforming the shadow. And the fourth is then integrating that transformation in daily life. So pretty straightforward. Accessing and being in touch with the shadow are the main, you know, once you go there, a lot of the others can, can happen pretty well. <clears throat> so accessing. How do we know what shadow material for us? Maybe some of you thought, as I was talking about the different areas, well, I've worked through this, but hey, okay, that one, that's not quite finished, right? And uh, also to say that all of us have some shadow territory and that I think, I would say almost all of us have some remaining shadow territory. <clears throat> and one of the ways that we can notice is just in, whether in meditation or daily life, we can see where we get stuck or where there's reactivity. Reactivity is a good indicator of shadow, whether it's reactivity in my meditation or in my relationships or just in my daily flow. What do I, what do I get irritated by? Where do I have really fixed views? Where am I really tight with my views? What in my experience do I have aversion towards? What do I not like to see turn up in my meditation? What emotions do I feel uncomfortable with? What, I, what areas of my life or what aspects of my being do I not want others to know about? What parts of myself do I not want to express in a relationship? What do I want to keep to myself? Where do I feel shame? Where do I judge myself? Where do I judge others? Sometimes parts of the shadow only appear when there is a given context. They may not be obvious to us. Um, I remember one person who was a monk for 30 years and never had certain issues come up. He stopped being a monk, got into a relationship, and all of a sudden there were all these shadow areas right, that hadn't appeared in 30 years of meditation. Interesting, right? Interesting, interesting finding right, that that occurred. So sometimes we go into a different context and it brings out a shadow area or it stimulates something that 
that uh, might not be there apparent in other areas. Uh, many of us can really access much of the shadow territories, or some of them at least, in meditation. How many of you think you've accessed shadow areas in meditation? Yeah, because basically we sit here and we just let whatever comes into our experience be there, right? And if we stay long enough and develop enough attention, some of the shadow territory will appear. I know this was true for me, and I told some of the stories in the last, I think when we were looking at time, that some of my early retreats were entries into shadow territory. I remember one of my retreats about two or three years into my practice, I did a retreat and I uh, started having a lot of fear when I was, had a cold and was, and was sniffling and not really being a good meditator. I could see a certain level of perfectionism and self-image and I thought, oh, those other people will see me. I'm not a good meditator. And I had fear for a whole retreat like that. And I was able to open to it that the fear was clearly there all the time, but I wasn't aware of my fear, right? A lot of fear is in the shadow. Another time I was, um, anger started appearing, which I think was part of my shadow. And it really burst forth in one retreat where I was angry for 10 hours a day, or actually more like 15 hours a day for 10 days in a row. Just angry and whoa, shadow, <laughs> right? And it was really interesting to explore, you know. And the way the meditation works, generally, we're not aggressive with trying to make the shadow appear. It's more like we let it, we let the defenses, as it were, melt somewhat on their own, rather than forcing them, right? And so, meditation can open us up to some of these shadow areas. Often it's very helpful to have teachers or guides point to certain areas. You know, I've had teachers say, uh, I think it'd be good to look here, <laughs> right? And it was helpful, right? It didn't conform to my self-image necessarily, but it was helpful, right? So we can have guides or teachers suggest looking at a certain area. And of course, there are all sorts of other ways of accessing <clears throat> shadow territory. Uh, obviously, psychotherapy is a main way to work with uh, a lot of the issues we've been talking about, a lot of the shadow areas, and there, you know, there are tremendous number of different approaches in doing psychological work. So that might be a very wonderful complement. And there's this developing understanding of how psychotherapy complements meditation. And these days, for a lot of people, they're not so easily distinguished. People may, in the context of a meditation retreat or meditation teaching, bring in psychological tools and perspectives. And similarly, psychologists may bring in meditative tools. So they're not always so clearly distinguished. When I work on the judgmental mind, I think of it as really an integration of psychological approaches and meditative approaches. Um, Dreams are a pretty amazing way to enter into 
and notice the shadow. Anyone here look at your dreams carefully? It's pretty amazing. Um, in, in fact, I was actually, just two nights ago, I was, I've been personally doing some interesting <coughs> explorations of some, an area which is, still has aspects in my own shadow, which is that of really being willing to work um, very directly with conflict and openly with conflict, right? That's hard for most of us who are conditioned to be conflict avoidant. And I noticed I had a dream two nights ago in which I was uh, sitting there and all these wild animals, tigers and lions, came and sat right around me, very happy and peaceful. I thought, whoa, I think that's related to that area. So dreams can be amazing. Right? Dreams can be very amazing. I, had, I remember when I was um, in my 20s, I was, I was really into dreams and getting into shadow stuff, and I was noticing that in my dreams, whenever there was like a dark body of water, or I'd be in like dark water, or it'd be night, like a monster would come out of the water in my dreams. It would keep on happening. You know, I'd notice a monster. And as the dreams went on, there seemed to be more <clears throat> awareness of the monster. And I seemed to be getting closer to the monsters, not so scared of the monsters. There's like a, there's like a children's book called The Monster Who Grew Smaller, which is basically, as you look at the monster, it gets smaller. And so in, these, in this dream cycle, which was like over quite a few months, I was, I was starting to see, you know, at first I just noticed every time there's just um, like darkness, a monster would appear. And then I started to see the monster more clearly. There was a sequence, in other words. I noticed the monster more clearly. I'd be able to be around it. It wasn't so scary. And then at one point, this is getting a few stages ahead of me, at one point later on, I kissed the monster. <laughs> and, and, and of course, heaven and earth exploded. <laughs> right, yeah. but, but it was really, it was like, whoa. I, I woke up from that tree and said, whoa, that, I think that means something. <laughs> right? it, it reminded me of the, uh, the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast. Because right? it's like uh, the beast gets close to beauty and it's only, you know, at a certain point, the beast is, looks like uh, the beast is dying. And beauty is able to get very close to the beast up until that point, but um, doesn't fully love the beast. And at a certain point, the beast is dying, seems to be dying, and beauty expresses her love for the beast and the beast turns into, as in these old fairy tales, a handsome prince, right? Um, and says, until someone would actually accept me for who I am, I could not be changed from being a beast. Right? So there's something, that old story is related. I thought of that when I was thinking about the monster and kissing the monster. So there are all these different approaches. We can notice the... We can start noticing the inner voices and so forth. <clears throat> the second stage, at a certain point, 
we we're, we're start getting in the territory of the shadow. You know, I start being able to be with my fear. Maybe in meditation, <clears throat> maybe just in daily life, I can be with my anger more. I can be with my fear. I can hang out with it. I can open, you know, to conflict. I can be willing to go into the areas where there's shame. You know, and again, I may do this in a more methodical way, or I may just do this on my own. I may notice the process happening, like I said, through dreams, like in my, my sequence. We can, we can get to notice uh, it more well. We can get to notice the shadow better. We may start to identify the limiting beliefs. We may start to say, oh, gosh, I have this story in my mind, I'm not okay. Or, gosh, I have this story that I'm noticing, uh, my anger is not okay. Or, um, gosh, uh, that problem, it's my fault. You know, when there's, a, when there's something bad happens, it's my fault. I start, some, some of that starts to come into awareness. We start to be aware and we start to be able to be with our experience when those have power. And note, oh, I just had something difficult happen at work and I'm blaming myself. Let me see how I do that. What's it feel like in the body? What's it like in the mind? We start to really enter into that territory and be able to be with it and stay with it. We notice the patterns. We get to see what it's like in the, uh, the body, the emotions, the mind. Humor is very helpful. Playfulness is very helpful when we're in this shadow territory. Also very helpful is to be able to bring compassion practice, some of the heart practices. When I work with people with judgmental mind work, I say, if you're going into difficult territory, have to have heart practices which are uplifting. Compassion, forgiveness, loving kindness, joy. These are really crucial for going into difficult territory because it's a lot to do that. If we're going into a lot of that or be with beauty, listen to music a lot, right? Or be with the earth a lot. These are all real crucial going into the shadow territory. And so there's a certain point where one's familiar with the shadow territory. You know it, you're no longer scared of it. The monster, as it were, has grown smaller. Right? You can be with it, it's still not easy, still not hard, but you're not scared of it in the original way. And you can be with it. And this is the point where transformation can start occurring, where there can be a different way of being with a difficult territory. This is the third stage I'm calling transforming the shadow, where we may get so familiar with anger that we're willing to go into anger, we start experimenting in our lives. We may have a different view. Anger is no longer bad, but anger is a part of human life. And I'm willing to go there. And in my relationships, I start expressing anger more. It's a little scary, but I start doing that more. And, you know, hopefully, you know, it's received well, right? Uh, but I, I, or I maybe I start deliberately going into areas that bring about some shame with the right people, right? Or I go into conflict. I'm willing to do that. 
or I, in some way, develop a different relationship to that limiting belief that I may have had. I may have a limiting belief that, uh, you know, this part of me is not okay, and I develop a really a very clear sense, this part of me, my anger, my fear, it's actually part of being human and it's cool, right? And I say that, or I might, or I might, uh, I might have the, the view that uh, one person I worked with had, we found she had a limiting, limiting belief, divorced women cannot be happy. She had that view. Obviously socially conditioned, pretty thick. It took a long time to access that and really know what that was. Then we found that she could organize her experience by developing the understanding, I am a beautiful, brilliant being. And what I do, for example, when I work with the judgmental mind, we try to identify a way to organize the transformation and get and clarify the curriculum. What helps you develop more that sense, I am a beautiful, brilliant being? And she could name five different activities, be with these people, do these activities. For her, some aspects of meditation were helpful. Be with beauty. Okay, that's your curriculum, do them every day. And that helps bring about the transformation. And then the last stage is integrating the transformation into daily life. And just to say that the transformation is never complete. People I've worked with, when, they, when they're stressed, in a sense, they regress. Under stress, we regress often. They could have done profound transformative work, a major stressor comes up, and they're right back, you know, with the shadow, having control. But it doesn't last so long and they have tools, and they're able usually to get out of it. But just to know that, that uh, the integration with daily life takes time, and we can sometimes test ourselves, and that can be very helpful to know. Sometimes we actually deliberately go into situations which used to activate the shadow. It can be exciting. Okay. So those are the four stages. I've spent the most time on the first two, especially in the first, accessing the shadow, number one, basically being with the shadow, getting familiar with it, learning about it, number two. Three, and these are not totally distinguished, number three, transforming the shadow, and number four, integrating the transformation with daily life, okay? And so this is really, I think, pointing to, uh, again, uh, a way of practicing for our times that can integrate the meditative tools with these ways of working with the uh, parts of ourselves which still need attention. So let me finish with a, a poem by Hafiz, who is the Sufi poet. He uses the language of talking about God here. You can translate that if you wish. This is a poem called, Eyes, My Eyes So Soft. Don't surrender your loneliness too quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human 
for even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. Let me invite just a moment now of reflecting and just seeing how that might have felt for you, the talk, any areas that opened up, any intentions that come out of this exploration. So thank you uh, very kindly for your attention. And we have some time now. If there are any reflections or questions, we'll use the mic for this. Thank you very much. We must put it in the radio program. What evil lurks in the hearts of men only the shadow knows. <laughs> Only the shadow is a cartoon character, right? Mm -hmm. That's the, the old radio program. Yeah. The shadow. The shadow, yeah. Thirties and forties. Yeah. <laughs> only the shadow knows, and only we don't know the shadow. <laughs> yeah. A little closer. Hafiz, uh, sometimes pronounced Hafez, I think. I had a native uh, Farsi speaker corrected me once. H-I-F-I-Z, uh, sometimes spelled H-A-F-E-Z, but uh, I've usually seen it H-A-F-I-Z. And there should be uh, collections in the bookstore, some beautiful translations, you know. Yeah. But what happens is it's my shadow is not acceptable to other people. Yeah. And maybe it's because I have a transformed inner or whatever. But you know, to express anger or be able to it um, isn't real acceptable with a lot of people. They don't want to stay yeah. around angry people. Yeah. And um, so I I've i received a lot of rejection trying to be authentic. Yeah. Wow, how many can relate to that, that point? I think, thank you for that, that's really uh, important. So a few things uh, occur to me. One is uh, that I think you're pointing to the way that uh, we share in our families, in our cultures, a lot of the same shadow material. So that if you start expressing your shadow with people who haven't themselves done transformative work with the shadow, 
they will give you a reaction which will be similar to how it, the shadow got formed in the first place. <laughs> right? Uh, so that's, that's important to know. So a few things occur to me. One thing I didn't mention because I was wanting to go through the stages, particularly third and fourth somewhat quickly, a lot of the, um, even the first stage, but a lot of the second and third stages occur in protected environments. And protected environments are very important for transforming the shadow. And that can mean a few things. So meditation is a protected environment. And we may have people in the meditative community who maybe share the perspective on the shadow that you do. Uh, working with a psychologist creates a protected environment, protected place. And so sometimes we have to do the transformative work in a safe enough space where we can experiment with new behaviors and have people not immediately give us negative feedback or, neg or react to them. Uh, of course, sometimes we might uh, want to deliberately seek out certain people with whom to develop our new behaviors <laughs> in terms of expressing anger, let's say. And related to that is it's important to be savvy when you're when you, uh, when you are saying, I'm going to go, I'm going in, my, ang my anger is part of my shadow, I'm going to experiment with expressing my anger. Uh, know with whom you're doing that. And of course, the further aspect of this is um, anger may be part of my shadow, but the answer to going into the, or the, the answer to anger being part of my shadow is not, is to actually learn how to investigate and express anger skillfully, right? And so that's a key part of it as well. It's not simply, you know, just blurting out things or, or indulging in anger, you know, or just venting all the time, you know. Um, Sometimes that's uh, portrayed as a possible option, like to the, the image of the therapist who says, go in the forest and just bang on the tree or whatever. And then, you know, with the suggestion, you might do that with people too. So, so that, those are probably four or five different responses. Make use of protected environments or with people who, with whom your approach could be helpful. Learn to be skillful with the shadow area, which is a whole area in itself, right? It's a whole further area of investigation. Uh, and know that uh, some people may not be welcoming if you express your, your, your shadow territory because they are still dominated by the shadow. Thank you. It brought out a lot, didn't it? Yeah. story about uh, Jen's boyfriend brought to mind a friend of mine who uh, had difficulties when she would go back to New Jersey to visit her family yeah. who did not understand how her, how their um, lawyer daughter had gone to California and become a Tibetan Buddhist. <laughs> um, 
and she found that the family visits became easier when she acted less like a Buddhist and more like the Buddha. Oh yeah. <laughs> I heard a very similar story, maybe it's the same one that's gone through a few iterations, of a, of a young woman who came from a fundamentalist family like in Alberta or something, or in, in maybe it was in, uh, in, it was in the prairie, one of the, Man maybe Manitoba, one of the prairie provinces of Canada. And she, she said something very similar. When I'm a Buddhist, my parents hate me. When I'm a Buddha, they love me. <laughs> yeah. We'll wait for the mic. Yeah. But when we are, oh my goodness. Yeah. A great resource in my own shadow behavior. Yeah. Right. That's that. Thank you for bringing that out because it's something I didn't say explicitly. Uh, that the shadow material brings richness, tremendous resources, fills us out. Um, Jung said that uh, there can only be wholeness when we've engaged in what he called rich and protracted negotiations with the shadow. <laughs> but, they, but they bring tremendous resources. The vulnerability can be a shadow for many of us, right? And the resources are tremendous. The resources of both uh, ways to be with ourselves or others, but also uh, compassion, right? If we've worked with a shadow area, we can have a lot of compassion for someone for whom there's still shadow there, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Please, yeah. Uh, you mentioned a book, uh, Thomas Sinister Mindfulness. What's the author's name? Uh, David Trelevin, T-R-E-A-L-E-A-V-E-N, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness. Um, it's usually in the bookstore. David's, David's local, and he had the experience, as many people have had, of doing meditation retreats before people were that savvy about trauma and having traumatic activation and being told by teachers, just stay with it. It didn't work, right? It caused uh, further trauma, right? And so out of that experience, which I've heard about from a number of other people, there's more, there's tremendously more savvy these days about uh, the, the mix of doing trauma work and using, and using meditation. We have a lot of uh, offerings here at Spirit Rock on, on that combination. Right. So it's a very, very crucial area. We're still learning a lot. Yeah. Please. I know we have limited time. Um, just that brought up a quick thought to give some um, acknowledgement to Linda Graham, who's a local yeah. um, meditator and psychotherapist who has done some um, trauma work here and has been part of one of the intensive three-day workshops, and I highly recommend that because not only are we meditating and talking, but we're actually doing practices. 
in the workshop to actually yeah. hear some of that trauma as we work through the workshop. It's, it's, it's a really amazing work and you actually get to know a lot of it in the past 30 days. So Thank you. Yeah. Linda wrote a book called Bouncing Back, which uh, should be in the bookstore. Yeah, it made me, made me really reflect that, uh, gosh, having, a, you know, like a six-month program on this would be a way to go into more depth. How many would sign up? She's doing okay. a program here on the third. What? Linda Graham is doing a program here on the third. Yeah, Linda Graham's doing it on the third, but I was saying, if I, I would collaborate with some others and do a six-month program on the Shada, how, how many would sign up for it? Okay. okay, how many would be willing to sign up if you, other people don't see your hand going up? <laughs> okay. Okay. So look at your dreams. Watch your dreams. It's, um, it can be a really fun area, even though it's also scary. And so uh, we'll close again. Invite your intention for the next period of time to be there. Any ways you want to work with what came up and take it further. And we close with the dedication of merit. May our time this morning be a benefit to ourselves, be a benefit to those in our own circles. And then may the benefit extend beyond our own lives and the lives of those in our circles, ultimately to all beings. And we always remember that we are a part of all beings. May the benefit be with all of us. Thank you for your kind attention and your, your practice and uh, to be continued. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.